In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps a $5 minimum balance required. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. I would be Matt or Matlana. I didn't give myself the nickname. I earned the nickname. Let's not waste any time. Let's get to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. Uh, I was baseball the way. I mean, I love the game of baseball ever since I was six years old. I did a book report. They asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. I said I wanted to be a major league baseball player. That's all I ever wanted to do. That's all I dreamed about. I slept thought about it all the time, and that was the goal. So when did you start to realize that you're really good? Maybe not Major League Baseball, because while we all dream of that, that's probably not realistic. Are you high school age when you realize, gosh, I'm pretty good at this, and some folks start to take notice? Um, not really. Um, you know, if I, if I have to really go back and kind of ponder, maybe it was a false illusion in my own mind. But my father said something to me when I was a kid, and I would say this to all your listeners that have children, that if they don't believe in, your, in their self, nobody else will. You go out there and do the best that you can. If you make it, you're satisfied. If you don't, you're content knowing that you did everything you could. And the main thing is that don't have a regret. And so that's kind of how I went at it. You know, as, like I said, I was the smallest guy on the team. You know, when I was young, in high school, I started freshman ball, sophomore ball. And junior year, I didn't even have that bad. I sat, uh, you know, on the, on the bench and kept score. Uh, our best player on the team was our catcher. And his brother played my position. So you know how politics work. And I just thought, well, hopefully I'll get a chance to play at some point. My senior year, I think I had 32 at-bats. That was it. Uh, one of the guys got hurt going into the playoffs towards the end of the year, and I was able to play and did pretty well. And still, you know, it was I was just driven. And uh, so from that point on, you know, I remember my dad said, well, where do you want to go to college? And I walked outside and got the newspaper, and I looked at the schools. The best school in the nation was Arizona State. And I said, well, if I can walk onto that team and make the club, then I got a chance of playing in the big leagues. And my dad, again, being an optimist, said, well, you got to have something to fall back on. But go out there and do the best you can. I walked on there, and there were 209 walk-ons on the junior varsity, and they only kept eight, eight of us. And, um, you know, I played the full year there and went in to try to get a scholarship. My dad paid for the first two, and they said, we can't do anything as a sophomore, maybe as a junior. And, so I remember going home and playing in a fall league because I just needed to play, you know, play baseball. I just needed to play. People had to see me play. And I went to this little team in Zion, Illinois. I, I grew up in Libertyville in Zion, Illinois. And, you know, basically it was a team called the Dill Brothers, and I played. And while I was there, there was a guy that played against me and says, hey, I think I can get you a scholarship to southeastern Oklahoma. And I went, okay, there must be a reason. I went over there and. You know, it was an NAIA school, but again, wanted to be able to play and had an opportunity to play there. And, you know, when I got to the big leagues, they asked me where I played. I said, um, you know, Arizona State and in southeastern Oklahoma. Jim Brock, who was the head coach in Arizona State, said, you know, Brett Butler was an Aries Lion. He never played here. That's how much I impressed him. But to his credit, I think most of the guys on that 75-76 team um, played in the big leagues, if not 20 of them, almost all of them. 
And um, so, I mean, he's not going to remember a little scrumpini like me at that time. <laughs> well, tell me again if the Internet's wrong on this, but I'll trust it. You were a 23rd, uh, 23rd round draft choice by the Braves in 1979. So if you want to take me back, what was the experience like? Is there a negotiation at all for a signing bonus, for a salary? How did that play out? No, that's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> you know, I um, there was a, a scout by the name of, I can't remember his first name, but Gastaway with the, with the Phillies. And my, my baseball coach was a basketball player. He was also the athletic director and really didn't have a baseball coach, so he took it upon himself to do it. And, um, and Gastaway walked up to him and, you know, I had 31 home runs in three years at Southeastern. And he says, if this kid hits a home run today, I'll draft him. And I hit two. And he walked up to him and he goes, he's just too dang little. I can't do it. And so there was a scout by the name of Bob Mavis. who was kind of what they call, uh, what do you call him? Uh, just a Bernie scout, you know, not anybody really famous or anything. And, uh, you know, my college coach, Don Parham, said, if he'll just get his foot in the door, you don't even have to give him any money. Just get his foot in the door, and he'll be all right. And so I remember I'm on the outskirts of of Durant, Oklahoma, and a little holiday inn, and he goes, hey, I'm going to sign you a contract. And he goes, I'm going to give you $1,000. And try to negotiate. I'm like, eh, I need 5000 i got to get a car. And he got up, and he started to walk out. And I said, where are you going? He goes, well, this $1,000 that I'm giving you is out of my pocket. But Doc believed so much in you that I, I was taking the risk. And I said, come back here. And I signed the contract. And <laughs> that was the negotiations. I ended up then going from there to Bradenton, Florida. And I was there at Pirate City. <laughs> that was it. So how was the minor league experience right away when you're getting paid to play at that point? Do you look around and realize everybody's as good as me? Or do you still, I mean, you have a confidence going in. You're a pro ball player that you had a chance to make your way quickly through the system. Well, I looked around me and all I saw were a lot of Latin players and a lot of high school kids. There was like three or four college guys and I was a college graduate. I'm like, whoa, what's going on down here? But again, uh, I really didn't kind of compare myself to anybody else. I just said, I'm going to go out there and do the best I could. I knew I could outrun pretty much everybody on the team. I knew that I had that advantage. Um, I, I knew that I could run down balls in the outfield because of my speed. And, you know, I believe that uh, I had an approach to the plate that would be beneficial for me. And if I just go about my business trying to do that, that, you know, the sky's the limit and we'll see what happened again, wanting to have no regret. And that's kind of what I did. So take me through the uh, special moment when you find out you're going to the bigs. Well, and, you know, it was one of those things where, um, you know, I had been in instructional ball um, that year earlier coming out of A ball, and uh, Bobby and them invited me, Bobby Cox invited me to Big League Camp. So I went up there and had a great spring, and I'm actually the last guy cut. And uh, I walk into his office, and he says, I want to keep you, but they won't let me. They think the jump from A ball to the Big Leagues is, is too much. I'm like, come on, Bobby, and just like anybody else, you kind of go, come on, you know you need me. I know you need a leadoff guy. I showed you I can get on base. And he goes, listen, go down there and do the things you're doing, and when you do, um, then I'll be able to call you back. I'll tell you, if you play like you're playing now, you'll be in the big leagues before the year is over. So I remember walking out of his office, and you know, being a born-again Christian, I'm like, Lord, I gave you my life years ago, and you have a plan for my life, and so I'll go down, he goes, you're skipping double A, and you're going to triple A. So I'm thinking, okay, that's positive. That's only one step from the big leagues. And 
when I walked down there and I just said, okay, Lord, it's in your hands. I went down there and the third day down there, I met my wife of 38 years now. And, uh, she was going to Virginia Commonwealth, uh, helping JD Barnett and Tubby Smith in the basketball program. And she came with a girlfriend to a ball game and fell in love with her. And that was it. And so I was there and, um, I, I was fortunate enough to be MVP of the league, uh, that year and got called up August 20th. And, I, I remember I was in my uh, in my apartment, and I got called by the uh, general manager, and he goes, "Hey, you're going to the big leagues," and you know, I'd hurt my leg sliding or something the next, you know, the night before, and so man, I just couldn't believe it. Couldn't you know, couldn't sleep. Got on the plane, you know, that next day. Got up there, and they rushed me into the office, and I mean, I remember just my hands shaking. I couldn't believe it, and they called and said, "Get him downstairs. He's in the lineup." and Man, I, I, I mean, I, I just couldn't believe it. And then I walked on the field, and here I am. And, you know, my first at bat, I remember getting in the box, and I had two thoughts. One was, Lord, don't let me wet my pants. <laughs> and, it, and the other one was, just let me hit the ball. We played the Mets, and I hit a little two-hopper to Doug, Doug Flynn and became a dear friend of mine at second base. And he was a golden glover, and he just it kind of popped up on me, picked it up through the first base, and I was – I was safe, and man, that was it. It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. I hope you'll go see my friend Sean Daly. That's, get it, the Daily Draft. This is the ultimate sports bar experience. So as the football playoffs near, and then baseball's around the corner, knock on wood, and all the fun springtime things that will happen in Atlanta, you're going to want to enjoy it at the Daily Draft. It's downtown Woodstock on Main Street. What you're going to find, a craft beer bar, self-serve taps, uh, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salad, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. TheDailyDraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like Trivia Night, Kids Eat Free Night, and more. TheDailyDraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love The Daily Draft. Hey, are you tired of shopping your car and home insurance every single year? Well, somebody's got to do it. But that somebody doesn't have to be you. At The Rose Group, we can get you up to 10 insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes. Visit us online today at roads-group.com. So the 81 season started to see the Braves bring up a nice young core, yourself included, but Dale Murphy's already here. Bob Horner's already here. Um, Glenn Hubbard, Rafael Ramirez. Like, there was a, a nice core being built. Take me through that offseason for you personally and for the team. Did you think 82 was going to be I'm making the club no matter what, or did you still have to come back and fight your way on? Well, I don't think you ever assume anything. You know, I got called up the last, you know, six weeks of the season. So, again, I go in uh, to spring train with the mindset that it's my responsibility to win a job. It's not given to me. I have to win it. And so I, uh, I remember going there, and I made the club, and I don't know what it was. Most of my career in April, I just struggled. I don't know if it was because it was cold or what it was or maybe a little – Colonius Maximus Puckatosis early in the season. I can't, I don't know what that was, but I just struggled. And uh, so they sent me down uh, about, I don't know, six weeks into the season. And I went down and I had to have a little mind adjustment. Wait, 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 wait. These guys put on their pants just like I do. I'm putting the pressure on myself. This is all internal. You know, you've proven you can play. 
So just go out there and play. And so I was able to kind of regenerate my, 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 my thinking and got called back to the big leagues, and, and then that was it. So the 82 season, as a longtime Atlantans will remember, is the great start, the 13-0 team that just found a way to win games one after another. There's some great highlights of you scoring, if not a winning run or a tying run against Cincinnati. What was the city like when you guys start putting together those wins, 5-0, 6-0, 7-0? Was it one of those, like, because, again, Atlanta hadn't seen a winner since 69. Was it one of those sort of movie stories that everybody just jumped on board? Well, I think it was kind of uh, the city was stirring, I guess is the best way um you could do it. I remember Glenn time and, um, you know, there was the long way to October mm-hmm. and that was something that was started right at the beginning of spring training. So, you know, I think that then everybody had more of a personal relationship with, with the team and individuals on the club because of that documentary by, by Glenn diamond and them. And uh, so kind of walked through the whole, you know, the whole season, but, Early, you can see it. You get momentum, and then something happens. There's a bad hop or something here. And I remember um, seeing um, uh, an interview where, where, where Gibson had said to um, Joe Torrey, if we don't win this thing, man, you know, then something's wrong. You know, it was kind of one of those things later on, you know, uh, I think in the second documentary. But, again, there was a, a stir within the city that – wow, you know, things are going our way now when it hadn't gone for so many years. It was exciting. I'm going to ask you about some of the personalities on that team, but you went from six weeks with Bobby Cox in 81, Joe Torre becomes the manager in 82. Tell me about the differences in those two guys. Uh, Bobby Cox was a player's manager. Bobby never threw you under the bus, ever. He wouldn't do it to the media. He really wouldn't do it to the front office. Now, if he had to scold you or if he had to discipline you or if he had to say something, he'd call you in his office like a man and tell you the way things are. you got to do this, you got to do that. But he never, never did it to the media, ever. And um, that was one thing that I admired about Bobby is he always backed his players, no matter what. And the players knew that. And so the players would do everything they could um, to uh, do the best they could for Bobby because they knew that they were a direct reflection of, of his managing and what he was supposed to do. Joe, when Joe came in, Joe was a master at dealing with veterans. He was unbelievable. You know, the kid, you know, he would, I, I think, you know, he'd take me or take the kid that was coming up because he still had to prove himself. But he believed in his veteran core. And so what he would do is he would kind of go to the veterans and say, listen, this is your team. You know, I just kind of direct the orchestra, but this is your team. You guys discipline. You guys, um, you know, call everybody to account of what needs to be done. And that's kind of how Joe went about it. Talk to me about some of the personalities, starting with Dale Murphy, who at that time was building an MVP resume in 82. He'd win it again in 83. What was Murph like on a daily basis? Murph is probably one of the few people in my life, let alone baseball players, that I ever heard anybody say anything negative about. He was a genuine man that cared about his family. He cared about his teammates. You know, back in the day, we used to be able to go around each other and say, hey, can I borrow your tickets? Can I borrow your tickets? If nobody was in town so that you were able to give your other friends and family. Murph never did that. Murph would just go up to Bill Anchor and say, hey, Billy, I need 20 extra tickets. And here's my – he was just – he was the, the perfect example of how a man of character and a true 
um, superstar playing with humility. Um, he never said anything negative, negative to anybody other than I think there was one time they were thinking about trying to put Bob Horner in left field. And Bob was out there taking some fly balls, and, you know, he looked at Dale, and, you know, Bobby had that big personality, and he looked at Dale, and he goes, hey, Dale, you can teach a monkey how to play in the outfield, just kind of playing around. And Murph just kind of looked at him and said, well, let's see if this monkey will tell you where the fence is when you get close to it, just to try to make him laugh and all that. But that's how Dale was. And there's nobody that ever played with Dale Murphy then um, I would say whatever say a negative thing about him. He was just a class individual. Well, you mentioned Bob Horner. Um, I mean, Bob, supreme ta- uh, talent. You don't go from Arizona State to the bigs uh, right away without just being that gifted. What was he like, not only as a player, but in the clubhouse and just to be around? Well, he was a big personality. Uh, you, you know, I mean, remember, here I am, here I am at Arizona State, you know, you know, and I'm and I'm watching this guy play because I'm on the junior varsity. So there are times we'd go over and play against him and stuff. But this guy, and, and I guess if I really had to look, um, his swing and Paul Molitor's swing is the the shortest and quickest swing I think I've ever seen in baseball. But Bob had this this uncanny calm about him at the plate, almost like he was half asleep. But he knew how to hit. Now, third base, it's a little different story. You know, if it was in with about a foot or so, Bobby, he'd catch it. But other than that, you know, <laughs> but, man, he could flat-out hit. And, you know, it was one of those things that he played with a little bit of cockiness, a little bit of arrogance about him that a lot of people respected. So, I mean, he was he was big in the clubhouse, and he was big on the field. You guys, that year, as I said, Brett, you get off to the 13-0 start. Then you have a, a stretch in the middle of the year where you lose 19 of 21 before rebounding to win the West. Um, is it Joe Torrey? Is it a nice mix of veterans? How does that team go through that long period where things aren't going well to right the ship? Well, and again, I think that's that's where Joe comes in and he calms the storm. He said, listen, we, we, we did it 13 in a row. Okay, and now what's going on? Let's get back to basics. Everybody go back. Okay, internalize. Know what your role is. Know what you're supposed to do. You know, Brett, get on base. Uh, hey, you know, Rafi or Hubby, you need to move them over. Bobby and Murph, you guys, and let's play. More than anything else was play solid defense. Okay, pitchers, first first pitch strikes type of thing. Know what your job description is and then go out there and do it to the best of your ability. And the season is one that you win a third and you lose a third. Okay, but champions are decided in that last third, and that's what we have to do now. Look where we're at. We started out here, now we're back to almost square run, but we know we've got the talent in this room to do it. And he was always one of those that would always look at half full instead of half empty, and that's what I admired about him. Well, the shame of that postseason is you guys played in what was a best of five against the Cardinals in the NLCS. You have a one nothing lead behind your ace and Phil Necro, and the game gets washed out, which today they would have just picked the game up where it was instead after four and nearly making it a, an official game, the game gets washed out and you guys would lose the next three to the Cardinals. As a young player, do you think I'll be right back, or does it sting as much as a rookie as it would as a 15-year vet? Well, I, you know, when I, I think you always assume that, that you know, it's going to come back to you quicker than it did <laughs> or quicker than it does. Sometimes, you know, uh, it, it never does. You know, you look at the Cubs and Ernie Banks and all them and them never getting in the playoffs and all that. You always hope it will. And for those that it happens year after year, and then I think – you know, on an occasion they take it, you know, they take it for granted. 
Um, but as a young player, you really don't know what to expect. So you just kind of go with the flow and actually keep your mouth shut. And you, and you listen to the veterans, and they, uh, you know, they tell you what to do, and they teach you how to play the game, which is, I think, is so much different now because back when I broke in, think about it. You only had two or three, maybe four rookies on a team, and the rest were veterans, and they told you exactly how to play and how you're supposed to go about it. I mean, I remember Jerry Royster, who was our utility, and he was a super utility guy. But, you know, Jerry took me under his wing and, okay, do this, and this is what you do, and this is how you handle this, and this is where you go about this, and when we go out to restaurants, this, and this is how you treat And you just go through it. And as a, as a rookie, you were quiet. Today it's different. You know, 20 of them are rookies, and five of them are veterans. And so, you know, it's a little bit different today. We're brought to you by Dantana's in the heart of Buckhead and downtown in the CNN Center. Go to dantanas.com for more. Brett, you mentioned the documentary, and I should point out to the listeners, a long way to October. You can see it on YouTube. It's, it's out there from the 82 season, then the 83, and then the 84. And the reason I bring it up, so from 82, you make the postseason. Then I imagine the offseason of 83 comes a lot of expectation of a young core, a nice amount of veterans, and a team that was, at that point, expected to do big things. What was the offseason like for you, knowing now the Braves weren't going to sneak up on anybody? Well, again, it was just uh, preparation meets opportunity. You know, you got to go out there and you got to work it. And I, I, you know, to me, it was always one of those things that, um, you know, you're going to only be as good as the effort that you put into it. And for me, I was always one of those guys that was driven. You know, I didn't take much time off. I was always trying to get in shape and taking a lot of hacks, uh, a lot of swings uh, in the cage and trying to get prepared, you know. And and then just uh, for me, I never lifted on my legs. I wasn't a guy that lifted on my legs because um, um, I'd always run up hills for strength and, and down hills for speed. I did box work and things like that. I stretched a lot because I didn't want to pull any muscles, and I was fortunate not to be able to do that. But, again, really trying to physically um, uh, get healthy and then get prepared in that way. And then you go to spring training, Matt, just like anything else, and you get down there, and the first week you're doing all the things that you do in baseball, but I'll be a son of a gun. You are sore for at least a week in spring training because, again, it's the repetition of using mu- muscles over and over and over again and some that you really haven't used in the winter. And you got to, you know, develop that. So it's not as as easy as it looks at times. And then you get in the dog days of August. You want to make sure you're getting your rest and that you're eating right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a grueling year. You guys were in a pennant race and a good one all throughout that year in 83. But sort of a sidebar that became a big deal to you. And, and again, it's featured in the doc that everybody can see. But you had a good year that year. You stole, you stole 39 bases. You hit 280. You did all the things they wanted to. And all of a sudden trade rumors start to swirl a little bit with your name involved. How did you handle that? I broke my heart. You know, uh, uh, it's one of those things. I think that a player, uh, and I don't know how it is today, but back then, um, you know, you, you if you were with a club that drafted and you knew that they, they cared enough about you that they wanted you on the team. And so for me with that, I always had wished I would look on the back of my my baseball card, and then I was in Atlanta Brave my whole career. Um, but again, uh, the way the business goes, um, you know, and then all of a sudden pressure comes, the pennant starts, the race starts to go down to the wire, and, you know, there's pressure there, and so for an office has to make decisions accordingly. Um, in their mind, um, you know, you would have to ask them, had I established myself, had I not, did they think somebody could take my place? Well, that was the case, and, and, and so then when uh, I found out I was getting traded, like I said, it broke my heart. Brett Butler, Atlanta, gone with the wind, all that stuff made me laugh. 
But, you know, I, you know, that's where we lived. That's where I was raising my children. That's where I wanted to be able to have my career start and end and, and then work like that. And then I had to shift gears in my mind and say, okay, at least somebody wants me. And so then I just kind of tucked my tail and headed to Cleveland from there. Well, but before that, Brett, here's the weird thing about this. And for those who don't remember, you're traded in season, but it was, was put as a player to be named later, and you were still allowed to finish the year with the Braves, which, again, would never happen today. When you got wind, or at least rumor that it was you, didn't you go to Ted Turner? How was that conversation? Well, it, it was kind of like that. Ted, you know, Ted, Ted was visible. He was in the clubhouse a lot. You know, he was kind of like one of the boys. He wanted to be part of the boys. Hey, it's my team. I paid for it. I want to be part of the boys. So he'd come down there a lot. And so at one point I heard the rumor. So I just walked up to him. I've always been that way, kind of bold and brash. And I'm like, Ted, you got to tell me for my fa- for my family's sake. You got to tell me if I'm the player to be named later. And he kind of hesitated, kind of looked at me, and he kind of blinked at me. I'm like, what's that mean? <laughs> what is that? And then just kind of found out that, you know, it was me. And in turn, it said the player to be named later, then he should have been named later. But because I was told that I need to go to immediately, and Dick Moss was my agent. He was a lawyer for the Players Association for, you know, a lot, a lot of years. And he was powerful, and he, he, he knew the law. He knew how things were, contract law and all of that. And I said, listen, this isn't my fault. He told me, but this isn't my fault. Then it got to the media. I should not be jeopardized with the possibility that we're going to go to the playoffs. I want to be a part of the playoffs. Then I am now exiled to Cleveland because of this. So, well, you know, he went in and did his magic, and I think he was Ted was fined twenty five thousand dollars or something, and I was able to stay with the team for the rest of the year. And then in the winter, was I had to head to Cleveland. Now you mentioned Ted was always around, right? Wanted to be a part of the boys, like. Paint that picture for our, our folks listening right now because football owners, we see them on the sideline. Um, you know, you see Mark Cuban, the Mavericks, sitting behind the bench. They're visible, but, like, Ted was a whole different kind of visible, right? He was always there. Well, he was a different animal. I mean, if you remember even earlier than that, at one point I think he got on the field and managed the team for a day. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that was that's how Ted was. He was the Maverick, man. He, he just he wanted to win. That's only what he wanted to win, but he wanted to be a part of it. You know, there's something special about a team and the clubhouse and being part of the boys. You know, and even though he wasn't, he wanted to try to be. And so that's why there were times he was in the clubhouse and he was very easy to, to talk to. Uh, you know, just kind of matter of fact, you know, and yeah, I don't care. And I still drive my 64 Chevy, and, you know, and he just kind of talked like that was Ted. I mean, he was just like that. He was very, very approachable. And, you know, I remember one time, you know, um, I'm walking out. My wife, Eveline's there. So Ted walks up to her and goes, hey, Scarlett. How you doing? And and, and Evelyn goes, Ted, I, I know you call me Scarlet because you don't remember my name. And he goes, No, Evelyn. I mean, you can say Evelyn or Eveline, but he knew Evelyn. He goes, No, Evelyn, I know. I just like calling you Scarlet. And that's one thing about about Ted. People looked at Ted like he wasn't very smart. I'm telling you what, that guy was one of the smartest men I've ever met in regard to what he did and, you know, with the billboard sign and what he did with TBS and all that. I mean, he was a genius. It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. 
I hope you'll go see my friend Sean Daly. That's, get it, the Daily Draft. This is the ultimate sports bar experience. So as the football playoffs near, and then baseball's around the corner, knock on wood, and all the fun springtime things that will happen in Atlanta, you're going to want to enjoy it at the Daily Draft. It's downtown Woodstock on Main Street. What you're going to find, a craft beer bar, self-serve taps, uh, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salad, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. The dailydraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like trivia night, kids eat free night, and more. The dailydraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love the Daily Draft. Hey, are you tired of shopping your car and home insurance every single year? Well, somebody's got to do it. But that somebody doesn't have to be you. At the Rose Group, we can get you up to 10 insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes. Visit us online today at roads-group.com. So, Brett, you went on and played in Cleveland, L.A., San Francisco, and you've coached and done other things. What was Atlanta like, especially at that time compared to those other cities? Because it was still relatively small in the early 80s. What was the community like here? The community was like family. You know, it, it was just one of those. It wasn't big. You're right. It felt small. It felt like community. You know, and when we did the um, – um, Long Way to October, and then the Tale of Two Seasons, which was the next uh, documentary. Again, there was like a family affair atmosphere about it. And even when I, um, you know, when I got traded um, uh, that year, I remember they put up on the Jumbotron, they put up, you know, When Will I See You Again, and Highlights of Me. And, you know, every time I hear that song, it takes me back to, oh, man, I'm being torn away from my family. And that's really how it felt, I think, for all the players at that time in Atlanta. Brett, throughout your career, and it was a great career, I mean, one of the best leadoff men. For me, I just remember Brett Butler was the biggest pain in the backside, and that was the compliment because he was going to drive a ball into left field and then steal a base, and you were just going to do those things really well. But baseball kind of got, I imagine, pushed to the, if not back burner, to the side because you had some, like, major health scares along the way. Take us back to uh, a couple of those. Well, um, you know, the, the, the biggest one was, um, you know, in the uh, winter of, um, of 95, I got a sore throat. And, um, you know, uh, I was in my tonsil, and so I went to the, the doctor. And my buddy of mine, Bob Gatlinch, who was an ENT in Atlanta, um, said, hey, you got tonsillitis. You know, it's no big deal. And so I got some antibiotics. And him and, and Mickey Melman, who was the physician in, in Los Angeles, you know, they thought that um, – you know, just do this and you go to spring training. And so I, you know, I, I, I took the antibiotics, went to spring training. It started to get worse and get worse. And, you know, April, you know, went through it. And I'm struggling a little bit again like I did in April. But we get into May and, and uh, Lasorda calls me in the office and he says, hey, I'm going to give you a couple of days off. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, old man, you're struggling. And I'm like, Skip, my, my throat's killing me. You know, and I need to go get my tonsils out. And so I'll be back in a, a number of weeks. And so I went home to Atlanta, and they put me under and went in to get my tonsil. And when I woke up, they told me I had cancer. Shot me. Shocked everybody in the family and all that stuff. And, 
again, being a born again Christian, like everything happens for a reason. I don't understand it, but I gave you my life to do with it what you wanted. And so I trust whatever you'll have, if it's live or die or whatever, I'm going to try to be a the best example I can be in regard to that. And so, you know, that was May 2nd. I'm like, Lord, if you want me to play again, you know, I'll play. And if not, fine. And I remember the doctor, I walked up to the doctor and I said, hey, doc, uh, you know, what are the chances of me playing again this year? And he goes, this year, Brett, there's probably no chance you'll ever play baseball again. I'm like, well, okay, put a number on it. One in a hundred, one in a thousand. He goes, well, it's probably one in 5,000 that you, you know, you never play again. I said, well, doc, it was one in 10,000. I didn't even get in the big league. So I've already cut that in half. And if, God wants me to play. I'll play again, and I walked back on the on the field in September um, to a standing ovation of 45,000 people in Dodger Stadium as a credit to the power of the living God in my heart. And then five days later, squaring around like I always did a bunt, little cutter inside, broke my hand, and I was done for the rest of the year. And it was real hard on the family. So that's why then in 19, uh, in spring of 97, I had announced that this is going to be my last year. I'm 40 years old playing center field and, and hit first, and I hit 283 and walked off the field. And really don't have a regret in regard to doing that because it was just seemed like it was time for me to go. Well, that's remarkable, and it's great perspective that I mean you had then and now. You also had a health scare when you were take me back either coaching or uh, still involved in baseball. That again, I mean, this many years later to look back on it, I'm sure gives you some good perspective. Well, it was, uh, I think it was 07, and um, I was uh, managing a double-A in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, I was on the field. Um, we were on the road, and I was on the field. I think we were in Montgomery. And uh, I was at third base. And um, all of a sudden, I get this, this kind of almost like an equilibrium wave. I think it's inner ear stuff. I'm not sure what it was. And so it kind of went away, and I got done with my reports, went back to the hotel and, you know, told, um, you know, my trainer, I said, hey, I need something for inner ear and whatever. And so he gave it to me, and I don't know, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I get up to go to the bathroom, and I, it takes me to the floor. It just pulls me to the right, now, and I crawl to the bathroom, you know, go to the bathroom, and I get back off, and, I, you know, the room is spinning like I've had something to drink. And I called my trainer. I said, hey, I can't manage. Um, you know, somebody's going to have to do it. It was the last game. We're heading back the next day. And and um, so I laid in bed, called my wife and said, I don't know what's going on. I think it's in her ear or something, but I'll have to get that taken care of. And she heard something in my voice that she didn't like to hear. So she called the general manager in Longdale. And um, he came and uh, drove three hours. Uh, Bill Shanahan was his name. And uh, he drove for three hours and when they opened up the door i was in a fetal position on the on the ground and he put me in the car and you know i mean i'm still my balance is off and i'm kind of messed up and the hospital's like two exits away and he put me in the car and gave me a trash can and he goes i'm taking the hospital i said no go to mobile and uh, we drove three hours to mobile my wife got on a plane and immediately met uh, you know met us there and uh when I got in, they said I had a stroke oh. of the lower cerebellum. I'm like, what's that mean? Well, it's the back part. And when it did it, it only really affected my balance. And so my balance, you know, they said, you're, you're fortunate. But it came 
from the scar tissue when they did the total neck dissection because they cut me from just below my ear all the way down my neck and across the front to my Adam's apple. You know, then they took out 50 lymph nodes. I went through 32 rounds of radiation. And so they think it was the radiation that then caused the scar tissue to kind of close off my carotid artery. And that's what called, caused this little mini stroke. Um, but that was all it was. It affected my balance for about, I don't know, about two months. And since then, uh, everything's been fine and it hasn't come back. And, and you know, I was able to uh, go ahead. Uh, I didn't manage the next year. I was a roving outfield instructor and, instructor. and then in 2009, uh, I was able to manage the inaugural Rain Oasis team in AAA for the Diamondbacks. And we won it in 2012. And I was there for five years and then became the third base coach in Miami for 14 and 15. And then that was it. I was done. We're brought to you by Dantana's in the heart of Buckhead and downtown in the CNN Center. Go to dantanas.com for more. How was uh, life after baseball for Brett? Because I know family is, is so important to you and how much time and freedom has it given you away from the baseball field? Well, as I've, I've said to you before, I think that everything happens for a reason in our lives. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we don't understand it. But I've got a, right now I've got an 82-year-old mother-in-law who, um, you know, is, is living next to us. And she's been here for that, that time. And then I've got a brother-in-law who's in stage 7 dementia at 61 living in a lockdown facility. I've got two grandsons, um, now six and four, and there were other things that have transpired. I've had a daughter go through a divorce. I've had a couple of them having to move in with me. And I look back on it now, and I, I think, if, in fact, I was in baseball, and my wife has said this to me, I would have asked you to please retire and come home because I couldn't have done this by myself. So, again... It was right on time. There was a reason for me to get out of baseball. Don't get me wrong, man. I mean, there are three things I love. I love the Lord. I love my family and my friends, and I love baseball. And I still watch it. I went to a game yesterday, spring training game, for the first time in, you know, about two years. I watch it on TV because there's some guys out there that played for me that I still follow, like a Scherzer or an Upton or Adam Eaton or, you know, guys like that, Dean Gordon, who I coached. And so I follow those guys, Stanton and you know, Yelich and Azuna, because I had those guys in the outfield uh, as an outfield uh, coach in, in Seattle. So, I mean, in, in Miami. So I, I see these guys, and so I'm still part of it, but, uh, you know, I'm where I'm supposed to be, and there's nothing more important to me than relationships, not only with the Lord, but with your family and your friends. And right now uh, I'm locked in in discipleship at church, trying to teach men, young men, how to be men. Um, uh, in this world, and, and so it's uh, a tremendous satisfaction for me, and you know, my health is fine, my family's great, and I have really nothing to complain about. Life's been good for me. Well, you got a great attitude about everything. The story is remarkable, and I mean this, Brett, for a guy who wasn't in Atlanta for 20 years playing baseball, your impact was felt. I know when I, I started the podcast and I said, who do you want to hear from? Your name came up constantly, so yeah. Brett Butler is still very beloved in the Atlanta area. Uh, well, there's a special place for me you know, in Atlanta. I got a lot of my friends and uh, that are there, and it's something that uh, they were the team that, that chose me first. They were the team that showed uh, how much they cared, and Atlanta's always going to have a special place in my heart. Brett, thanks for the stories, Thank and thanks for the time. Continued success. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Matt. Lord bless you. Thanks, everybody, so much for taking the time to listen to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. Thanks to our producer, Matt Lear. 
for his assistance with the program. He's the glue that keeps the operation running. We'll talk to you next week on Welcome to Madlanta. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play And we ride on them things like every day Big beats hit streets, see gangsters roaming And parties don't stop till 8 in the morning Welcome to Atlanta where the players play And we ride on them things like every day Big beats hit streets In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps it $5 minimum balance required. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season.